Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of our Quest Diagnostics Topics in Drug Testing podcast. My name is Frank Samaro, Director of Clinical Marketing for the Drug Monitoring Franchise at Quest Diagnostics. Today's episode is about oral fluid testing, and we have with us Quest Diagnostics Executive Science Director, Dr. Les Edinburgh, and our Senior Medical Advisor, Dr. Jeff Gooden. Good morning, Dr. Edinburgh and Dr. Gooden. Great to have you with us today. Morning, Frank. Thanks for having us. I'll turn the podcast over to the two of you. Thanks, Frank. Once again, I'm Dr. Les Edinburgh. I'm the Executive Science Director for Toxicology and Drug Monitoring for Quest Diagnostics. Uh, Dr. Gooden? Yeah, thanks. I'm Jeff Gooden, a pain management and addiction specialist and a senior medical advisor to Quest Diagnostics Drug Monitoring and Toxicology Franchise. So, Les, why don't we jump right in? As Frank said, the topic for today is about oral fluid testing. Let's start out. Can you tell our listeners a little bit from a lab perspective about this fluid we call oral fluid? Uh, I would love to, Jeff. A lot of people think that oral fluid is a couple things, and I think first we need to understand what it actually is. Oral fluid is everything that is in your mouth. It's just not saliva. It's anything that's coming from the meal that you ate, anything that's left over in your mouth or anything that you put in it. Saliva is that specific fluid that we all think is oral fluid, but oral fluid is much more. So when we talk about oral fluid testing, it's correct to say saliva testing, even though I prefer the term oral fluid. But what oral fluid is not, it is not a buccal swab. A buccal swab is something we do to get a sample for collection to do DNA analysis or those kind of tests. And so it's important when you're talking about oral fluid testing that you don't decide you want to do a buccal swab because that'll be a sample we cannot use. Hey, Les, I hear this word matrix all the time, oral fluid as a matrix. Can you tell our listener what we mean in the lab when we talk about a matrix? Sure. A matrix is something that we use to test. So blood is a matrix, urine is a matrix. And so oral fluid is one of the matrices that we use to test in the laboratory. And uh, another question I get all the time is everyone wants to know about detection times. How do the detection times compare for all of those different matrices? Absolutely. Detection time is really a moving target. And one of the, the big points of this podcast is to clear up why detection times are different between urine and oral fluid in blood. Now, oral fluid being uh, derived from blood, they have a very similar detection time, although oral fluid is longer, but oral fluid is much shorter than urine, which is one of the reasons that we use urine fluid typically. But when you compare the cutoffs, it's very important if you're gonna compare the detection times to look at the cutoffs because the cutoffs determine how long you can see something. And I think we've talked about cutoffs in a previous podcast, but that cutoff is where we are able to detect drugs. So the lower the cutoff, the longer the detection period. And if you don't match your urine cutoffs with your oral fluid cutoffs, then you're gonna shorten your detection window for the oral fluid. Sorry, are you trying to say that different labs might have different cutoffs and therefore detection times might actually vary from lab to lab? Absolutely. And that's why it's kind of difficult to compare laboratories between laboratories and even within laboratories to compare urine and oral fluid testing. And to make that easier for our providers, we have tried to lower the oral fluid cutoffs to make the comparison between urine and oral fluid more comparable. 
Gotcha. And I, I want to pick up on something you said before. Clinicians all the time really simplify it and say, well, oral fluid levels and blood levels are going to be the same. Is there any way we can make a direct comparison between oral fluid and blood? You really can't. There, it really is drug dependent because when oral fluid is made, it can be an active or a passive process, meaning active means there's actually drug transported from the blood into the oral fluid and passive in that higher concentrations in the blood diffuse from the blood into the oral fluid. So really how much goes from the blood to the oral fluid will depend upon the specific chemistry of the drug. So for instance, alcohol or ethanol is almost one-to-one because ethanol is completely soluble in the water base in both blood and oral fluid. Whereas something like codeine, you actually find more codeine in oral fluid and blood, but if you talk like a benzodiazepine, it will be far less, almost a hundredfold less what you find in blood than what you'll find in oral fluid. So while the temptation may be there to draw a almost a clinical therapeutic level from an oral fluid test, we cannot do that. It's best to consider when viewing oral fluid results, just like you do a urine result. It is there, it is positive, or it is not. So Les, if, I might be interpreting this wrong. So if I have a patient on a benzodiazepine, would oral fluid not be an optimal matrix or it's just about the sensitivity of the test? It can be an optimal matrix, but it gets back to the cutoffs. If you were to use a laboratory that uses the conventional SAMHSA cutoffs for oral fluid testing, that is all about workplace testing and it's much higher levels. If you're talking about therapeutic levels of a benzodiazepine, you have to adjust the cutoffs, which is why our cutoffs for oral fluid are at 0.5 nanograms per mil, which is far below what you'll find therapeutically needed in blood, but it's what's necessary to see those same therapeutic concentrations in blood, so we'll see them in oral fluid. Uh, It's great to know that we can use oral fluid for testing benzos. I got another one for you. As an addiction specialist and also pain specialist, One of our analgesics, as you well know, is administered sublingually, and there are some that are administered buccally, so some that we actually let dissolve in the mouth. Can we compare those levels of, let's say, a drug like buprenorphine with oral fluid to blood levels, or again, is there no direct comparison? Once again, fantastic question, because the the buckle or the film formulation used for buprenorphine brings a whole other facet into why we can't interpret these uh, two together. So when you put the film in and it dissolves, you'll see a rise in the blood and then it'll fall. However, in oral fluid, because some of that buprenorphine actually gets stored in the tissue in the mouth, what we call tissue depoting, what happens is you'll see a rise in the oral fluid, then you'll see uh, of the buprenorphine, and then you'll see a drop. And then about six, eight hours later, you'll see another rise from the oral fluid as the buprenorphine starts to come out of the tissue that's in the mouth. And if you were trying to interpret that, you might that interpret that as a additional use, where in fact, it is what we would normally see in concentrations of buprenorphine in oral fluid. That's really fascinating. So let's just top line views, summarize for us kind of the benefits of using oral fluid as a drug testing matrix. We still rely on urine as our sort of gold standard uh, for drug monitoring, simply because we get a wider 
window of detection, we get more opportunity to detect drugs that may be given therapeutically like the opiates in low doses. But sometimes having an alternate sample, another choice is always good. I'm sure our providers get patients that are unable to provide urine, such as patients in dialysis. In the past, they would have relied on blood testing and blood testing cutoffs are woefully inadequate for measuring patient compliance in this arena. And so in that field, in that area, oral fluid is especially useful. Patients who are not ambulatory and it's difficult to give a urine sample, there may be patients who just refuse to provide urine because for whatever reason they don't want to do it. Uh, you then have a alternate specimen type that your staff does not have to fight with the patient to give a sample. In addition, just other reasons they don't want to cooperate you're making your life easier for them and giving them little room to offer a reason why they don't want to do it. You know, in the practice, we hear all the time, oh, doc, I can't go. I just went, you know, they sit by the water cooler. I think almost every pain management practice has put in water coolers so that people could sit and drink <laughs> to try to get them to, to give samples. So we happen to like the availability of oral fluid because once patients know that we can test them another way, they're more apt to give us a urine sample. Absolutely. And, and I always recommend adding the sentence, we have a much better method here in this oral fluid sample, so don't worry about it. And, <laughs> and I think that tends to bring them along to magically let the urine appear. I, I think there's some other good reasons. Some practices really do not like to do observed collections, and so they don't, which leads the opportunity for some patients to be creative in where the urine comes from. And doing oral fluid takes that completely off the table. They can do it right there in front of the person who's doing the initial assessment. And along with that, if you're working in a high-risk patient population, once again, you can do observe collections without the need and the issues surrounding direct observation of urine collection, and which then is, you know, your substance use disorder treatment population, your MATs, medical-assisted treatment population, where the opportunity and the need to maybe to practice in these desires to mess with the urine is there. It is also a backup for urine collection if you run out of urine collection devices and you're in a practice and you must have a drug test before you prescribe, you can reach for the oral fluid and get the sample. And once again, some practices just don't like to do urine collection, which we see a lot of in the behavioral clinics that aren't used to handling any samples but urine. So it, it becomes a real positive measure to have on board, even if you don't use it every day. Another point comes to mind. One of the most common questions I get is usually on interpretation of drug testing results. This thing between parent drugs and metabolites, how our laboratory tests report back all these metabolites of drugs. Is there a difference between testing oral fluid and testing urine with how we report whether it's the parent drug or the metabolite. Absolutely. And as once again, it gets back to where do the drugs come from in oral fluid? And if a drug is highly metabolized, you are not going to find those metabolites in the blood because they're going into the urine because that's what they're supposed to do when they're metabolized. So you see in our oral fluid, you see a lot more parent drugs. It's not every drug, but some of the big ones that people are used to seeing, I get calls and say, hey, wait a minute, where are all my benzodiazepine metabolites? Well, first of all, benzodiazepines are highly protein bound. Second of all, 
the metabolites go into the urine at a much higher rate and they're not available to be in oral fluids. So you do not see benzodiazepine metabolites like alpha-hydroxyalprazolam, which when providers are providing Xanax are available, you see the parent drug and they're not used to seeing that. Two other notable ones that we get calls on are the THC metabolite, the carboxy-THC. We see much more of the parent, and that's the only one that we report. And the other one is arenolic acid, which is the metabolite of methylphenidate. So we only report the methylphenidate and not the arenolic acid, whereas in urine, we report the arenolic acid and not the, the parent drug. I think that's super important for clinicians to know that when they look at results from a urine drug sample, urine is the way we excrete the metabolite. So you're going to see nor hydrocodone and, and ritalinic acid and those kind of things. But when you look at the oral fluid, you're literally looking for the parent drug, the prescribed drug. In most cases, yeah. And there's some notable exceptions because we like exceptions. Norbuprenorphine is a notable exception. And it also helps the provider understand maybe in that situation I described before, relatively norbuprenorphine to buprenorphine, it can help sort of guide them to at what phase the patient may be in an excretion. Meprobamate, which can't comes from carisoprodol, we report in oral fluid. And benzoecanine is just as prevalent in oral fluid as is the parent cocaine, which we also report, uh, which is very useful in helping to interpret the result. That's, uh, that's fantastic. You know, Les, for years we've been trying to educate ordering clinicians about the differences in laboratory tests. Point of care, like dipsticks, immunoassays, real high-tech screening that hopefully you'll talk to us about in just a second. And I know when I order urine drug testing on my patients, there is a presumptive screen that kind of reflexes the unexpected results to a more definitive test. Is that the way it works for oral fluid as well? It works similarly to that. And here's the difference. In our urine test, we do an immunoassay screen. And the purpose of the immunoassay screen is to remove most of the negative results so we can focus on the identification and quantification of those drugs that are truly positive in the sample. We can't do that with oral fluid. One, because there's not immunoassays for every drug that we offer. And two, the immunoassays that are present are not geared for clinical diagnostic purposes. They're geared for workplace testing uses, which means they're looking for higher levels. They're looking for intoxication and impairment, which is not what we're looking for when we wanna use oral fluid in a drug monitoring compliance world. To get around that, and because we have lowered our cutoffs in oral fluid, we use the mass spectrometer to actually screen as well as to confirm. This gives us additional security and the ability to go to these lower cutoffs to provide the cutoffs the providers actually need to ensure that oral fluid is going to give them the results they need to guide them in their decisions about their patient treatment. Uh, that's certainly reassuring. So what kind of drugs or what classes of drugs can we actually test with, with oral fluid? We actually have as testing 12 drug classes. Just briefly, we do alcohol metabolite, amphetamines, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, cocaine, marijuana, MDMA, meprobamate, methadone, methylphenidate, naltrexone, nicotine, opioids, fencyclidine, and zolpidem. And the opioid category includes, and I will call these out specifically, Jeff, because I think providers want to know what an opioid is, and, and there's different definitions by different groups. So in our opioids that are included 
in our oral fluid testing, it's buprenorphine, codeine, dihydrocodeine, fentanyl, heroin metabolite, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, meperidine, morphine, naloxone, nor buprenorphine, nor oxycodone, nor hydrocodone, oxycodone, oxymorphone, proxifene, tepentadol, and tramadol. Now that's a mouthful, but it's essential that the providers understand in this one test, they're getting all of those components to help guide their treatment decision. So in addition to the opiates, we also do fencyclidine and zolpidem. You know, Les, you mentioned in, the, uh, in that long list of classes initially that you test for alcohol. Can we accurately test for alcohol and oral fluid? Is that one of those things that hangs around the mouth as well? It's a good question, Jeff, about alcohol detection and oral fluid, because alcohol itself by oral fluid is very short, it's volatile, it's hard to measure. So we rely on the detection of what we call alcohol metabolites, uh, specifically ethylglucuronide and ethyl sulfate. Now, these two may be unfamiliar metabolites to most people, but they give us an extended detection period for when we're looking for alcohol exposure. Now, like some of our other compounds, the one we specifically look for is ethyl sulfate because ethylglucuronide is rapidly moved from the blood into the urine and is not prevalent in oral fluid. When we talk about detection of alcohol metabolites, we're specifically talking about ethyl sulfate, and it is included in the panel. That's great, Les, and, and it just reminds me, I mean, I thought I knew a lot about drug testing, but there are so many nuances, and, and it's important for clinicians to understand. How about a little bit about the collection process? Because I can tell you, even in my own practice, we've had trouble sometimes. You would think taking an oral fluid sample would be relatively straightforward, but collection is not always the easiest. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's important. Like anything, it is easy. There are uh, We have instructions that we send out with a kit. Uh, there are actually videos that you can watch to see how it's done. But as always, there are some nuances that help the collection go quickly and accurately. The first of all is patient preparation. Make sure the patient either rinses her mouth and you wait 10 minutes or you at least wait the 10 minutes. Uh, it may not be necessary to rinse the mouth unless you suspect some use. But it's important to wait the 10 minutes for the oral fluid and the saliva to clear. And this may not be because someone is trying to beat the test, but something as simple as sucking on a candy lozenges that gets into the sample makes it difficult for us to do the analysis. All that sugar and materials that are in that lozenges are going to be difficult for us to work around. So first of all, it's important to do the waiting period. You can have the mouth rinse, but it's not necessary, but it can be done. After that, you follow the instructions. You put the application, the applicator collection device in the mouth with the swab part, not against the cheek because that actually blocks the collection, but the plastic against the cheek and down towards the, the bottom of where the teeth is, where your saliva will tend to pull. You watch, there's a blue dot on the side of it, much like a pregnancy test. When it reaches the blue dot, the collection is over. It may be removed. You then gently slide the applicator into the buffer solution that's provided in the tube. Um, you cap it and label it, and you send it off just like any other specimen. That's great, Les. Do the labs like Quest have any brochures or information for clinicians kind of on best practices? I mean, we've had applicators that don't turn blue, applicator tips that break off, and uh, be helpful for those who are interested in using oral fluid for drug testing to know a little bit about where to get resources. We have brochures that outline the collection uh, procedure, 
and how to do the collection appropriately, what to do with hard to collect samples in case you have problems. In addition, we have a complete brochure that will get a little into the discussion of what the alternate sample type oral fluid is, advantages, disadvantages, what the menu, what the cutoffs are, and what is the actual value proposition of using oral fluid versus urine and why in your practice it might make sense. And, you know, I'll just suggest to our listeners that you should familiarize yourself with the process, train one person in your office so that they know and always be around to offer guidance. Because once you get the hang of this and understand where, where things could backfire, you can troubleshoot these things and make your process of collection, uh, collecting the specimen relatively easy. All right, Les, so I know that Quest has this toll-free helpline. You know, we get a lot of calls about drug tests, interpretation. Any last messages you want to leave our listeners with about interpreting results from oral fluid testing? Yeah, and I just want to back up to the last comment you made, Jeff, because that is very applicable to, you know, best practice in the offices. Have one person train But when that person leaves and you have to retrain someone else, I think it's important to go back and ensure, even with the Quest representative, that that training is complete. We see a lot of problems in transferring the knowledge from the previous collector to the new collector. And that's frustrating for the sites because when those samples get to the lab and they're inappropriate collected, we're going to have to cancel those test orders. And that is frustrating to everybody, frustrating to the provider, frustrating to the patient, and frustrating to the lab. And so I think developing a practice and a procedure in your office to ensure there is a continuation from person to person of that knowledge is important. Uh, To the point of interpretation, that's also very important. Number one, whether it's urine or oral fluid, resist the urge to overinterpret what is saying. We offer quantitative results, but those absolute values only indicate how high it is above the cutoff. There is no interpretation to how much dose they took, when they took the dose, and are they taking too much or did they not take enough? While on the other hand, relative amounts of parent to metabolite, where we have parent and metabolite, may be useful in understanding the time of last prior use to collection, meaning that if there is more parent than metabolite, the exposure may have been recent. If it's more metabolite to parent, then the exposure or the dose is probably further away. I always advise clinicians, start to know your patients. If you do the collection at the same time, every time they come in the office and you ask them, when did you take your dose last? Your own parameters, your own understanding of your own population will start to appear individualized to your patient without anything more than the results that we give you if you just start to trend that information on your own. And we do have some special considerations, and I can't say this enough, that when we do an oral fluid test and also a urine test, we're measuring what's in that matrix. We all assume it came from the person that gave it. That's how it got there. But how it got there can always be a question that we don't have an answer to. And I say this because the test we have for oral fluid is very sensitive and it needs to be. However, it's so sensitive that we can pick up environmental exposures to cocaine, fentanyl, and heroin. And what does that mean? If someone is in a social situation where someone is using cocaine and they're doing lines or cooking crack, wiping your hand on that and putting it in your mouth or having it on your hands can absolutely result in a positive cocaine oral fluid result. 
Now, is this the, the answer to everything? Is there some magical number that can point to this? No, there is not. Because once again, we don't know when it happened last and it happened just before they came in. But if you have a patient who insists that they're not using, understanding their social environment may be helpful, but it's not the only decision. The, the, the rest of the clinical picture needs to be added in to understand how that could have happened. You know, Les, it sounds like the passive marijuana exposure that we hear all the time from, from patients. So environmental exposure is certainly, certainly interesting. All right, last point before we conclude. Tell us a little bit about how Quest reports oral fluid and how it may be different than what uh, urine drug testing looks like. Yeah, I think it's pretty much the same. We have a cutoff below. The cutoff is reported as negative. At or above is, is reported with a, a numerical value. The difference is the oral fluid product does have not have our med match interpretation, so you won't get a consistent or inconsistent. It's just that it'll be labeled as high if it's above the cutoff, and, and high does not have any indication of that it's toxic or it's too much. It only means that it's greater than the cutoff. So if the cutoff is 50, if it is 50 or 51, you get the H to indicate that it's above the cutoff. Gotcha. And just to remind our listeners, when Dr. Edinburgh mentions MedMatch, that's the process by where when you provide us the list of medications that the patient is taking, we let you know on the drug test report whether the results are consistent with that list, like it's a medicine they might be taking, or inconsistent. And that's not available on oral fluid testing. Les, I can't thank you enough. That was certainly a great review of drug testing using saliva, I mean oral fluid, uh, as a testing matrix. <laughs> Any closing comments for our listeners? I think the, the, the biggest take-home message, uh, other than that they're much like urine, you don't overinterpret it, but it is a good alternate specimen to use. You must be aware of the cutoffs that are used to get the same level of detection that you may do with urine testing, but also do not be afraid to call the resources we have available when it comes to interpretation. I think it's always it's patient first. We should explore all scenarios of how the drug got in the sample and then let the clinical picture drive the interpretation. I can't say that enough. And we have those resources available, and please take use of them. That's great. So just to summarize, to remind you, the abuse and misuse of prescription drugs remains an epidemic in the United States. Quest Diagnostics serves one in three adult Americans and half of the physicians and hospitals in this country. We have the world's largest database of clinical lab results, and therefore, our diagnostic insights can certainly help improve healthcare management. From a prescribing or practice management standpoint, having a properly implemented drug testing program is certainly an important step in tackling drug misuse and abuse. And by performing more than 10 million drug tests annually, Quest has the experience to help you implement a successful drug monitoring program, one that helps protect your practice, safeguard your patients, and keep your community safe. Dr. Edinburgh mentioned some resources we have available, including a helpline. We call that our RX Tox line. You can get help there with ordering tests or interpreting results. That number is 877-40-RX-TOX or 877-407-9869. Please feel free to visit questdrugtesting.com to listen to some of the other podcasts in this series. And Frank, I'll turn it back over to you to close. Be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast venue and visit questdrugtesting.com.